Well, we've exited the time of year where perhaps children associate, uh, that children associate perhaps with expectation and occasional disappointment. And that's the time of Christmas. Sometimes children have high expectations for what they will be receiving on Christmas, and there's a bit of disappointment. And sometimes this is unjustified, and sometimes this is justified. Uh, I remember once when I was uh, young, I was uncharitable enough to have done a little counting, uh, and I said to my mom, I said, Mom, Peter got twice as many presents as I did. And she uh, uh, said, James, I'm very careful about making sure all the kids get the same amount of presents. I would not do that. And I, I, I was read the riot act. And then at about 11 p.m. or midnight or somewhere around then, I was awakened on the top of my bunk bed by my mother looking a little shamefaced with my father saying, I did forget a couple of presents in the gift closet. And so here you go. And I never figured out whether I was being ungrateful, and she had actually given me the correct amount, but felt bad that I felt bad about my presence, or whether she truly had forgotten. I never, I never did clear that up. But that is a time of expectation and disappointment sometimes for children. But we are entering a new time, a time in which perhaps we have expectation and disappointment for adults. And this is the time of the new year and resolutions comes uh, the new year and there's often a whole host of people who are going to join that gym, who are going to eat on that special diet, who are going to get up earlier, who are going to cut out this or that from their lives. And then by about January 10th, that is dead. They've disappointed themselves and others, uh, usually just themselves, I suppose. Uh, and they, they have to uh, decide that they'll wait another 355 days or so to make, try to make any change in their lives. Well, when we come to Zechariah chapter 4, and really in the whole book of Zechariah, I think it's fascinating to look at this character that we read about, a character who was of great importance to the children of God, and yet that we don't think about very much, and that is a man named Zerubbabel. I think this is a very important character to look at because this is somebody who clearly was chosen by God and somebody who clearly accomplished what God set forth for him to accomplish. Yet in many ways, when we read the prophecies about Zerubbabel that name him, if we put ourselves at the time of Zerubbabel, if we put ourselves at the time of uh, the people of Jerusalem, it would be very easy, perhaps, to conceive of some disappointment. Because this was a time of disappointment for the Jewish people. And this wasn't just a time of disappointment in the short term. This was a short time of disappointment that was going to last. Sometimes I've had the concept and the, the understanding because of the way our Bibles are put together that the time of uh, Zechariah, the time of Haggai, is shortly before the coming of Jesus Christ. And yet, in fact, 
We know that the time of Zechariah, the time of Zerubbabel, the time of the people coming again from captivity was over 500 years before Jesus. And I think this is important context, both for our understanding of Zerubbabel, for our understanding of our Bible, but also of our understanding of the people of uh, Judea, the people of Jerusalem, the Jewish people, who were waiting 500 years or more for something that they expected to come. And when we see uh, Zerubbabel, it would be very easy to see this man as somebody who perhaps did not fulfill his potential. We see the disappointment with people of uh, the Jewish nation at this time. Well, not even a Jewish nation, not even a Jewish state. A uh, simple uh, a vassal state at this time to a greater empire. And yet, we see in verse 10 a little a reminder, I think, for each one of us. Each one of us who is tempted to be discouraged, discouraged in uh, our individual ministry, discouraged by the current state of affairs around us, discouraged even with our own spiritual state. For who hath despised the day of small things, for they shall rejoice. There's a temptation sometimes to, uh, especially in the new year, to try to get into shape all in one week. There's a temptation to attempt to fix everything in one week, to be discouraged unless we see great things all at one time. And yet we see a story starting with Zerubbabel and moving through Ezra and Nehemiah of gradual, intentional building that led to something that, although not great from a human eye, perhaps, comparatively, nonetheless was God's will and was a fulfillment of God's will and therefore was indeed not small but great. So before we get into this sermon, let's begin by praying. Lord, I pray that you would be with us tonight that you would be uh, stirring our hearts, stirring my heart, Lord, that you would be speaking through me, Lord, that each one of our ears would be open and our hearts open to your message, Lord, whether uh, general or individual, and Lord, that each one of us would be given the grace to apply it. In your name, amen. Well, first, let's talk a little bit about the historical context of the book of Zechariah. Zechariah and Haggai were prophets who came after the children of Israel became, began coming back from Babylon. Now, let's just take a 40,000-foot view of the historical context because I think it gives some uh, fairly important understanding. We, because we have the Scripture, sometimes elevate the importance of Israel and Judah on the world stage. That's, that's simply uh, the case. And so when we read scripture, sometimes it's important to try our best to understand the world context as well to understand truly what was going on uh, in scripture. So first of all, we have a people who really in terms of their national prominence on the world stage had at best a very small, very small part to play. Under David and Solomon, of course, this was a great and glorious 
kingdom, and certainly under Solomon in terms of their riches, their power, their, uh, their prestige uh, with other nations. It was certainly very high, and there was a glorious temple that was built. But then we see, after that point, the uh, gradual and then speeding up decline of this kingdom, the splitting of the kingdoms, then the destruction of Israel eventually by the Assyrians, and then we have the Assyrians coming and eating up all of Judah except for Jerusalem until Hezekiah was miraculously miraculously rescued by God. And then we have basically Jerusalem and Judea, a fairly small little uh, province at this point or kingdom that itself eventually uh, that waxed and waned, but never waxed too great, then was eventually swallowed up by Babylon. Babylon, which destroyed Solomon's temple, this great and glorious building, destroyed the walls of Jerusalem and took most of the people of Jerusalem back to Babylon, to captivity, where they were for uh, a period of decades. Now, at that point, Israel is effectively gone, and Jerusalem is kind of a wasteland. There's been a destruction of the worship of God. The Ark of the Covenant is gone. And there is a scattered group of people, the ones, the greatest share of which are in Babylon in captivity. But then a, uh, a, a king of the Persians destroy, beats Babylon, takes over a man named Cyrus the Great, an incredibly important king who sets forth a prophecy. Now, it's very interesting, by the way. You could take some time to read and do a study on how the Bible talks about Cyrus. It's fascinating. Uh, God uh, anointed Cyrus, even though Cyrus did not know him. And Cyrus uh, uh, made a, uh, made a, uh, a law that allowed the coming back of certain Jews to uh, Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And uh, we read in uh, this area, in Ezra and Nehemiah, and in Haggai and Zechariah, that, of course, this uh, at first was uh, something that was opposed by the governors around them, by the people around them. And uh, I think perhaps, certainly I, but the rest of us are more familiar with Ezra and Nehemiah the building of the walls, first Ezra, the restoration of the worship of God, and Nehemiah, the building of the walls, and the restoration of at least some level of polity to uh, the, this uh, Jerusalem and Judea. Now again, in terms of the time frame, at this time, the children of uh, uh, Judea, the Jews, those in Jerusalem, were not in control of themselves. They were a servant state, a vassal state of Persia. Now, one thing that's very fascinating to think about, just as an aside, but one that I was looking at when I thought uh, through this, 
certainly as European, people of European descent, learning about European history, we have a tendency sometimes to identify very strongly with the Greeks and against the Persians. And so when we read about Thermopylae and we read about the 300, we, uh, we identify with uh, the courage uh, of the 300 and we don't, uh, we, we boo uh, the, the, the Persians who are coming to blot them out, and destroy freedom. It is fascinating to read in scripture and following the history of Jerusalem to note that Cyrus and Darius were those who allowed for the rebuilding of the temple and the restoration of the worship of God, and that in fact, this temple, this temple uh, here that was rebuilt by Zerubbabel that we will be talking about, was eventually desecrated by a Greek invader who has erected a statue of, of uh, Zeus and burned a pig, sacrificed a pig on the altar, carried away much of the gold of the temple. Something that is uh, interesting uh, to, uh, to think about uh, when we uh, think about where we are uh, 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 coming into contact with history and how it impacts uh, our view of the Bible. Nonetheless, that was to come. There were 500 years in which uh, Jerusalem was either self-governed or a slave state of various different empires. Uh, after uh, uh, there was this Antiochus who uh, performed this great desecration of the temple, the Maccabees rose up and threw off uh, this rule of the Greeks and for, uh, I think, approximately 100 years, there was self-rule again by the Jews. And then the Romans came, as the Romans came everywhere else. Like a mighty wave, Pompey came and uh, uh, took, uh, took over Jerusalem and turned it into another colony of Rome. And then, of course, uh, the temple was uh, built on and uh, rebuilt and reshaped by Herod. But then, of course, uh, as we've talked about shortly after the time of Jesus, the Romans destroyed the temple uh, down to the stones. And uh, this is history, perhaps, that we have a little bit more understanding of. But what happened in this time period from approximately 500 B.C. until the time of Jesus? And I think what we see in this time of 500 years is something that we see reflected a lot more clearly in the time of Jesus. When we read about, from Scripture about Jesus Christ and the Jewish understanding of the Messiah, we see great disappointment, even among the disciples, with what Jesus was, such that people could not conceive that this could possibly be the Messiah with who he was. Jesus was meant to be a great conqueror. And this was their understanding and their reading of the prophecies of the Old Testament. The Messiah was to come and restore Jewish sovereignty, was supposed to come and restore ancient borders, was supposed to come and uh, restore uh, Israel to greatness. 
Jerusalem to greatness, to come and restore this nation to its former, former glories. And the people could not understand it. How could this person, would this, this perhaps slightly ragamuffin-looking person who doesn't have a place to lay his head, person of poverty, of low birth, how could this person who is coming uh, uh, not with uh, glittering armies, how could this person be the promised one? Well, we see this attitude with relation to Jesus, and we go back, I think, and we can trace this back to the time of Zerubbabel. Now, not that the people had expectations necessarily for Zerubbabel, that he was going to be the Messiah, but we certainly see with Zerubbabel some, uh, some uh, prophecies in relation to him that I think could very, very easily be understood to, to lead to some disappointment on the, ha- on the behalf of some hopeful Jews. The end of Haggai, in chapter 2, there is a prophecy aimed at Zerubbabel, spoken to Zerubbabel by Haggai. Uh, we understand Haggai to be a very old prophet at this point, one who had known the former glories of the temple. And he says in verse 21, a verse, uh, verses that are familiar to us, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake the heavens and the earth, and I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms, and I will destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the heathen, and I will overthrow the chariots and those that ride in them. And the horses and their riders shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, will I take thee, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, saith the Lord, and will make thee as a signet, for I have chosen thee, saith the Lord of hosts. What's significant, by the way, of this reference to Shealtiel? Zerubbabel was a descendant of David. And there were people, uh, uh, the Jewish people, were looking for a descendant of David to come back to the throne. And this does not specifically say that Zerubbabel would come to the throne. And we can see in so many of these Old Testament prophets that they are related to the Messiah. But if you were at that time and your understanding of the Messiah, your understanding of what was to come, was a full restoration of your nation state of the worship of God, of all of the things, the former glories that had gone before, this would be something that would perhaps awaken some hope in you. And we see this as well in our reading today. We see in uh, verses 6 and on, Then answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Who art thou, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel thou shalt become a plain, and he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying, Grace, grace unto it. Zerubbabel was somebody who was going to accomplish great things. Mountains were going to tremble before him. That would, could be a very common understanding of these prophecies if you lived at this time. And it certainly could have appeared that way too for the citizens of Jerusalem. All of a sudden, there's excitement. We have a governor of this province who has been appointed by this great empire, Persia. The greatest empire on the face of the earth at this time, 
Babylon had finally conquered Assyria. Assyria had been wiped out, and the Persians had taken over. And again, despite some of the things that we understand, the Persian Empire expanded not by cruelty necessarily like the Assyrians, but uh, uh, expanded in general by allowing and tolerating the ability of people to govern themselves. This ability of some, uh, Zerubbabel to come in and restore the worship of God was so, not something that was unique in this case. But to the children of Jerusalem, to the Jews, this must have been extraordinarily hopeful. We are coming back home. We are coming back to Jerusalem. And not only that, we are beginning, the headstone has been laid, and we are beginning again to build the temple. Now we see in Ezra, by the way, the reaction of those who saw the temple build it. What was their reaction? In Ezra chapter 3, we see rejoicing. Now in the second year, this is in verse 8 now of chapter 3. Now in the second year of their coming into the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, began Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua the son of Josadak, and the remnant of their brethren, the priests and the Levites, and all that they were come out of captivity unto Jerusalem, and appointed the Levites from twenty years old and upward to set forward the work of the house of the Lord. Then stood Jeshua with his sons and his brethren, Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together, to set forward the workmen in the house of God, the sons of Hanadad with their sons and their brethren, the Levites. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, they set the priests in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord after the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang together by course in praising and giving thanks unto the Lord, because he is good, for his mercy endureth forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and chief of the fathers, who were ancient men that had seen the first house, when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, wept with a loud voice, and many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of the joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the noise was heard afar off. It was joy at the restoration, restoration of uh, the temple, and also sadness as they saw how it measured up to the memory of the first temple. And this is something that I think was to continue. Because as there was hope, as there was excitement, we see with Ezra and Nehemiah the restoration of the worship of God and the building of the walls. I'm doing a great work and cannot come down. Certainly, the worship of God continued for 500 years. Uh, the worship of God in that temple. And there were people of God, there were Jews worshiping God and serving him and living lives in Jerusalem. And yet, for those who were expecting a great restora restoration, it did not occur. <clears throat> Even at the time of uh, the Maccabean uh, uh, revolt and revolution, even when the people of Judea were able to govern themselves, there's certainly no restoration of former glories. There is no restoration of the borders. There is no restoration of the glories that they had heard about with their forebears and their ancestors. There was, in short, a small little province with a small little religion that was 
at the mercy of much larger empires for 500 years. Again, we think about this, and then we think about in the time of Jesus, a time of great revolt, a time of great uh, 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 turmoil, and the expectations of the people, I think, comes into greater focus. And yet, as we understand this context, as we look at this, this story of a man who reopened the temple but didn't rebuild the wall, who after rebuilding the temple passes from the scene, Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, uh, we believe that Nehemiah took over as governor of this province of Judea, again, under the rule of this Persian empire. As we see him pass kind of quietly from the scene, perhaps back to Babylon where he was born, perhaps uh, going, uh, staying in Jerusalem, but going back into obscurity, we don't know. As we see these things, I think it's important to understand an important truth, an important truth we see throughout Scripture, which is that Zerubbabel was given a task to accomplish. First of all, he was given a task to accomplish by Cyrus the Great, and that was to rebuild the temple. But more importantly, he was given a task by God, and that was to restore the worship of Jehovah in Jerusalem. That's what he was called to do. He was called to rebuild the temple. That was the requirement, and he did so. He did so in a temple that was certainly nothing like Solomon's temple, and a temple that was not even comparable to Herod the Great's temple, was, by all accounts, a modest temple, a temple that did not uh, have the glories of Solomon's temple, not simply in terms of architecture, but what even was present in the Holy of Holies, that did not have, that eventually would not even have uh, the menorah, which would be stolen, uh, which would eventually not even have uh, anything that would be uh, uh, torn down completely, but nonetheless, that would function for uh, 500 or more years, perhaps 600 years, as the spot in which the people of God worshipped him. Now, this is where I think this phrase is so important. For who hath despised the day of small things? Now this is in combination, this is in the context of the verse before it. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also finish it, and thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts has sent me unto you. Zerubbabel was given a task to accomplish. A task that may have, at the time, seemed modest in comparison with the hopes of the people around him, the hopes of the people who were hoping for a greater and stronger city and, and province and, in fact, nation. But Zerubbabel was given a task, and he did it. We don't sense any disappointment from Scripture in relation to Zerubbabel. 
We don't sense, there's no, uh, 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 that I see, there's no tone in which Zerubbabel did not accomplish what he was set out to accomplish. Now again, if we read some of these prophecies in Haggai and Zechariah, it would be easy to read these, certainly in the context of the time, or even in looking back and say, well, the mountains were supposed to tumble before Zerubbabel, it seems like. God says Zerubbabel was to be his signet, signet symbolizing royalty. He was chosen of God. God is talking about him in the context of kingdoms being overthrown, kingdoms of the heathen being destroyed. And we see this, and we certainly don't see that reflected in the life of Zerubbabel. We don't see that reflected in the land of Judea at this time. We don't see uh, the Jewish people rising up, expanding their borders, expanding their power, expanding their, uh, their independence. We don't see that at this time. We don't see that uh, reflected very much for the next history of the people of uh, Judea going forward into Jesus' time and then in their eventual uh, dispersal. We don't see this reflected, although, of course, it is easy in today's day and age, reading Scripture and the whole Council of Scripture, to see, in fact, what these prophecies were referencing. Because, of course, Zerubbabel is mentioned in the New Testament as directly in the line of Jesus Christ. And so, this prophecies that mention Zerubbabel, that are directed to Zerubbabel and his line, in fact, uh, uh, reference the coming Messiah. But even were that to be the case, even were that to be the case, it would again be easy to see this ancestor of Zerubbabel, or this uh, descendant of Zerubbabel, uh, Jesus Christ, and again look at him with the same form of expectations as indeed the children of Judea in his day, 500 years later, did in fact see him. And that is with the same expectations for greatness in a worldly sense, for power, for domination in a worldly sense, and to have some form of disappointment. Yet certainly we don't see that disappointment reflected in God when he spoke about his beloved son in whom he was well pleased. It would have been very easy for the disciples to consider the day of Jesus to be a day of small things. Because to people of an earthly bent, an earthly frame of reference and frame of mind, it would be very easy to look at Jesus and say, what were the highlights we had 5,000 people that we fed at one point. We seemed like a big deal, and you fled. You left them. You weren't at the head of them. And then you came into Jerusalem finally, and the people were on your side, 
And it looked like we had some momentum. And then, shortly afterwards, you were tortured to death and passed from the scene. And everyone in Jerusalem continued on worrying about the big issues of the day, which was who was going to rid us of the Romans, which people were, were on the side of the Romans, which people needed to be assassinated for supporting the Romans, what alliances could we make to get our freedom and our independence and restore our sovereignty. And it would have been very easy to despise the day of Jesus as small things, just as it was very easy to look at the day of Zerubbabel and say, ultimately, we had these great swelling prophecies, and what did we get? Small potatoes. We got the building of a subpar house of God, and that didn't lead to some great expansion. It didn't lead to some incredible uh, uh, uprising. It didn't lead to some parting of the Red Sea level event in which we are, were able to cast off the bonds of slavery. The restoration of the worship of God occurred. The temple, this small little temple was built. And then we remained in our bonds. We remained under the yoke of Persia. And then thereafter, under the yoke of a variety of different empires, having no say in our own governance, being uh, oppressed, and having nothing that we could do about it. What happened to these great swelling prophecies about rescue and redemption? Well, of course, again, looking at Scripture, we can see that there were no small things in the time of Jesus Christ. His great redemption was uh, truly uh, world-shattering and uh, 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 bond-destroying in a way that the people at that time, many of them could not fully understand, but the ones who did experience understood true freedom, a true freedom that took uh, uh, no, no uh, uh, into account nothing uh, of the actual leaders of the country, a true freedom that came from uh, God destroying the bonds of sin in a human heart. But we can also see that in Zerubbabel's time, that God did a great thing. God restored the worship of him through his people. We think about this in the historical context and think about how many other nations, how many other peoples, how many other religions were stamped out, were destroyed, and simply died. How many different gods were being worshipped at the time of Zerubbabel? Too many to count. And the gods that these great empires worshipped, they are not worshipped anymore. They have died out. Their memory has died out. All of the lore and the scripture around them for almost every one of the gods that were uh, worshipped at this time has died out. And yet in this tiny backwater vassal state, 
there was the restoration of a modest little house of prayer in which people would continue to worship God for hundreds of years thereafter, and which, after being modified and rebuilt to some extent, the Savior of mankind would himself come to worship, would himself come to teach. The the work of Zerubbabel was not truly a small thing in a spiritual context, though it might have seemed to not only the people of Zerubbabel's time, but the people historically looking 200, 300 years later. Think about us going back to the founding of our nation. And if you uh, were to take that same period of time, you'd be about halfway in between uh, uh, Zerubbabel's time and uh, the time of Jesus. And looking back historically and saying, hundreds of years ago, we came back from Babylon, we reoccupied this city and this area, and we're still in bondage. We rebuilt a temple, but we are still not free. We are still, the temple is still not built to anything approaching the greatness that it was before. And yet, we understand and we know that that temple, the temple of Zerubbabel, was in fact to be far more glorious than the temple of Solomon. I found it very fascinating to just think briefly about the people crying about the destruction uh, or the comparison of the Solomon's temple to this temple of Zerubbabel. If we think about it, that temple of Solomon, over the course of its time in the worship of God, had what we might call a spotty history. I think that would be fair to say. A history of kings and nations and priests who were so often, despite this glorious temple, not truly worshiping God with their whole heart, or even at all. Solomon himself, who built it, built that temple. It looked really nice. Then he built a whole variety of other places to worship other gods. And then we go from there. This was a temple that for all of its beauty and all of its glory was quite often uh, uh, not, uh, not used to truly glorify God, despite his glory dwelling there. And we have a tendency sometimes to see things with the eyes uh, of of our natural understanding. That is a tendency that we have. And it's, it's natural. It's natural. We see this in a variety of temptation in a variety of different ways. Uh, In our own view of our ministry. We're thinking about our ministry. We start thinking about things about numbers or things of that nature. But also in our own spiritual growth. We become, uh, we compare ourselves to perhaps various times of a greater spiritual walk with God. Or we compare ourselves to others that that person is walking in godliness that I, I truly can't comprehend. And we have a tendency of comparison with our natural understanding that causes us to be tempted to despise the day of small things. 
to have a tendency to say, why would we bother? To be discouraged, to be cast down over the comparative humility of certain circumstances that God has led us into in comparison to history or in comparison to others. But the fact is that God did not tell Zerubbabel to build Solomon's temple. God did not empower Zerubbabel to do it, and God did not tell Zerubbabel to do it. God did not tell Zerubbabel to conquer the entire promised land so that the borders of the kingdom of David and Solomon were restored. Nor did he empower him to do that. God did not tell Zerubbabel to do anything other than what he gave him the power and the resources to do. And that was to rebuild the temple of God in Jerusalem. And Zerubbabel did that. And God, we, don't, we see no indication that God was displeased with him. On the, on the contrary, we see God saying that he would set him as a signet. We see God uh, encouraging him. We see God uh, 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 talking about his place in the great drama of redemption that would be fulfilled with Zerubbabel's descendant. We see Zerubbabel's place in God's plan and God's uh, delight in his servant. And this should be something that should be encouraging to us. Now, all that to be said, it's not to say that Zerubbabel's work that God told him to do was not difficult, did not require great courage did not require great determination. We see with Nehemiah, and certainly if it was true of Nehemiah, it was also true of Zerubbabel as well. It was also true of Joshua as it was of Ezra. It was true of all of these men that it required great courage and determination. It required great tenacity to do what God called them to do. And yet, nevertheless, they were given a certain task to do and they fulfilled it. What does that mean for us? What does that mean for us in the new year? What does that mean for us in our ministry? What does that mean for us in our families? What does that mean for us in our own personal walk with God? What it means is not to despise the day of small things. Now, I'm not certainly meaning simply this in terms of numbers, but in terms of actions. Each one of you will have an opportunity, potentially during this service, potentially during the time of communion, potentially as we go home today, to do the next right thing, whatever that is that God calls you to do. We don't daydream usually about the small things, about the next right thing. We tend to daydream about great things. We tend to daydream about some great opportunity that is laid at our door that will require great courage, some great uh, and impressive thing. And yet, the thing that God calls you to do next may be something extremely small. Maybe simply reading your scripture tonight. That is something that God may be calling you to do. 
It may be something as as simple as picking up the phone and calling somebody who God lays on your heart for encouragement, simply to see how they're doing. There's a variety of different small things that God can give you to do. Small things that build his temple, as it were, that build his kingdom. Small things that advance the cause of his great drama of redemption in small, seemingly insignificant ways, one stone upon another, that nevertheless, if God calls you to do, it is glorious. Do not look at the work that God calls you to do and despise it. Do not look at the work God calls you to do and be disheartened in it. If God has given it to you to do, in whatever corner it is, in whatever area, no matter how thankless it may seem, no matter how comparatively minor and insignificant it may seem, if God has given it to you to do, do it with all your might as unto him. Do not despise it, but follow through. This is my encouragement to you, not simply in terms of our New Year's resolutions, but in everything that God gives you to do in your life. As he gave the task to Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel accomplished that task. We hear nothing more about him. God has given each one of you tasks. God has given each one of us tasks. He has given each one of us things to do that may perhaps not be noticed at the time, may never be noticed by anyone except him. And yet we know that when we finally come before God, he will know whether we have carried out in each specific task, in each specific area of purity and devotion and righteousness, in each specific task of kindness and love, in each specific task, what, whether we have followed out his will as he shall revealed it to us. So let us not, as we go forward, despise the day of small things. Let us uh, work with patience in whichever area God opens to us, in whichever way God gives us the vision to do things for him on a grand scale or on a comparatively minor scale. And let us go forward encouraged in the fact that God has given each one of us tasks that are specifically designed for us, specifically designed for the work that he has given us, the, uh, the uh, abilities that he has given us to do that work, the resources that he has given to us as well. And let us be encouraged. Let us be encouraged. Because as those people around Zerubbabel who truly saw with the eyes of God, saw the great work that God was doing through him, not focusing on the size of the building compared to the former glories, not focused on the hopes for great uh, uh, political upheavals that they were hoping for or promised, but simply seeing the restoration of God's work, the furthering of his kingdom. Let us see the same in the work that God gives us to do and do it with all our might. Let's close with the word of prayer. 
Dear Jesus, I thank you for the tasks that you gave Zerubbabel, and I thank you for the resources that you gave him to achieve it. Lord, I thank you for the tasks that you give us, each one of us. Lord, not simply here when we are at church, not simply when we are specifically working in your ministry, but in the ministry that you give us in our families, with our friends, in our own personal walk with you, in our work of holiness. Lord, I thank you for the work that you have given each one of us to do. Lord, I pray that our eyes would be open to that work, that we would have no mistake about what you would be calling us to do. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to value it, to be grateful for it, and to accomplish it with your uh, strength and power and in our humility. I pray these things in your name. Amen. All right. Well, let's move into our time of communion. And then after that, we will close with uh, a final song. We turn to 1 Corinthians. Chapter 11. And at this time of the Lord's Supper, I think it would be uh, useful to us as we are taking the bread uh, that we uh, take some time and uh, listen to the Spirit and see in which way he is directing us uh, based on uh, this, this, uh, this passage from his word. <clears throat> we read in chapter uh, 11, verse 23 of 1 Corinthians, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. 